Amazing love, how can it be? As Scotty has been pointing out the praise this morning as far as worshiping our, our Lord, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God in three. I, want a reading, I have a reading in Isaiah 40. And as Matthew Henry states, this piece, Isaiah 40, I'm going to read 9 through 15. It's to encourage his people that were captives in Babylon. I mean, that's the history of it. To have hope in God, to depend on him for deliverance, though they were ever so weak and their oppressors ever so strong. Are we not in a dry and thirsty land? Captive by that, do we not need this encouragement from a sovereign God that holds the waters in his hand? Another piece that Henry talks about regarding this little bit of passage is to engage them, those that are captive, to cleave to him. Not turn aside after other gods, for there are none to be compared with him. I'm going to read this section, then I'll go back and read Matthew Henry's commentary on those few verses. Just solid, grateful for men of the past that have been able to write down not divine, uh, divine writings at all, but ones in which they were seeking the Lord in the writings that they were reading to help us understand, to help people during that time to understand. Isaiah 40, verse 9. O Zion, that brings good tidings, get thee up unto the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that brings good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. I didn't say that right. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, comprehended the dust of the earth to a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, it taught him. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him? Taught him in the path of judgment. Taught him knowledge. Showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the aisles as a very little thing. So Mr. Henry has to say about this. So let us see how great our God is and fear before him. For his power is unlimited. I'm going to go back. I'm going to reread the just before that. I gave you the two reasons why he believes this was written to encourage the people to engage them to cleave him, but also to possess all those who receive the glad tidings of redemption by Christ with a holy awe and reverence of God. Though it was said, behold your God, and 
he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. Yet these condescensions of his grace must not be thought of with any diminution. I was trying to pronounce it with the kids this morning, making it look smaller to trans, 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 transcendencies of his glory. Let us see how great our God is and fear before him. For his power is unlimited, and what no creature can compare with, much less contend with. One, his vast reach. View the celestial globe, and you are astonished at the extent of it. But the great God meets the heavens with a span. To him they are but a handbreadth. So large-handed is he. View the terraqueous globe, land and water. And he has the command of that too. All the waters in the world he can measure in the hollow of his hand, where we can hold but a little water, and the dry land he easily manages, for he comprehends the dust of the earth in a measure with his three fingers. It is no more to him than a pugil. It's what you can pick up with your three fingers, a pugil. I don't think they use that word anymore. He has a vast strength and can as easily move mountains and hills as the tradesman heaves his goods into the scales and out of them again. He poises them with his hand as exactly as if he weighed them in a pair of balances. This may refer to the work of creation when the heavens were stretched out as exactly as that which is spanned in the earth and waters were put together in just proportions as if they had been measured. And the mountains made of such a weight as to serve to ballast the globe and no more. Or it may refer to the work of providence and consistency of all the creatures with each other. It's the perhapses that Matthew puts in, Mr. Henry puts into this. So we have his power, but also his wisdom. His wisdom is unsearchable and that no creature can give either information or direction to as none can do what God has done and does, so none can assist him in the doing of it or suggest anything to him which he thought not of. When the Lord, of, when the Lord by his Spirit made the world, there was none that directed his Spirit or gave him any advice, either what to do or how to do it, nor does he need any counselor to direct him in the government of the world, nor is there any with whom he consults as the wisest kings do with those that know and know law and judgment. God needs not to be told what is done, for he knows it perfectly, nor needs he be advised concerning what is to be done, for he knows both the right end and the proper means. This is much insisted upon here, because the poor captives had no politicians among them to manage their concerns at court or to put them in a way of gaining their liberty. No matter, says the prophet, you have a God to act for you. You needs not the assistance of a statesman. In the great work of our redemption by Christ, matters were concerted before the world was, when there was one to teach God in the path of judgment. His power, his wisdom, and finally the nations of the world are nothing in comparison to him. 
Take them all together, all the great and mighty nations of the earth, kings the most pompous, kingdoms the most populous, both the most wealthy. Take the isles, the multitude of them, the isles of the Gentiles before him. When they stand in competition with him or in opposition to him, there's a drop in the bucket compared with the vast ocean or the small of the dust of the balance in comparison with all the dust of the earth. He takes them up, throws them away from him as a very little thing, not worth speaking of. They are all in his eye as nothing, as if they had no being at all, for they add nothing to his perfection and all sufficiency. They are counted by him and are to be counted by us in comparison of him less than nothing and vanity. When he pleases, he can as easily bring them all into nothing as at first he brought them out of nothing. When God has work to do, he values not either their assistance or the resistance of any creature. They are all vanity. It's the word that is used for chaos, Genesis 1, to which they will at last be reduced. So let this beget in us high thoughts of God and low thoughts of this world and engage us to make God and not man both our fear and our hope. This magnifies God's love to the world that, though it is of such small account and value with him, yet for the redemption of it he gave his only begotten son. We are captives in a dry and thirsty land, but we can praise him. Should this God be for us? Who can be against us? I may get animated this morning, so I thought I'd better get that mic up here. I'm pretty blessed about uh, what I think God is trying to teach me. I wanted to share it with you. Um, I wanted to talk this morning about grace. Now, grace is one of those words. It's a real common word, isn't it? We hear it all the time. Grace. There's grace. Well, what is grace? How does it work? Does it come and go? Is it for daily living? Or is it just for special occasions? Grace is akin to mercy. Uh, but it's not the same as mercy. Grace, grace and mercy are undeserved expressions of God's love. Both of them are. Some say grace is undeserved favor. But what is favor? How exactly does that impact us? You know, the best definition I've found, of course, would be in the Scriptures, but in regard to explaining the Scriptures, um, was in the Strong's, actually. And it said that grace, and try to grab this definition here, it's pretty short. Grace is divine influence upon the heart. Grace is divine influence upon the heart. And uh, I would add that this influence empowers us to glorify God with our daily living. Grace is God's power working in us for His glory. It's power. Grace is power. It's, it's God moving. It's God in us moving. 
and moving us then to live that life that glorifies Him. You know, God in His goodness, it's amazing that uh, in thinking about this last several days, I shared some with Dusty about this last Sunday, or last Sunday evening maybe, or Saturday, but anyway. Um, coming in this morning, Jim gave us a, a, we're listening to some sermons by John Piper, and it's their sermons are centered around someone in history, and they're very, very powerful sermons. And the one this morning was by John Newton, about John Newton, who wrote what? Amazing grace. I thank you, Lord, for that good encouragement. Okay, divine influence upon the heart. So I want to look at it from three different aspects. There is uh, saving grace. There's grace to be born again. There's grace to have faith to believe. Ephesians 2, uh, verses 5 and 8. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's that divine influence on the heart, the power of God working in us for his glory by what? Saving us. It glorifies God. Romans eleven five. Even so then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. John 1, 14, and then 16 to 17. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So there is saving grace coming from Jesus Christ, who is grace and truth. We're forgiven and transformed by him. And we are being transformed and conformed more and more, conformed daily uh, by him into his image. So there is saving grace. And then there's also the other end of that spectrum would be there's grace for dying. This grace is supplied by faith, which is nourished by truth. Romans eight thirty one to 39. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of, of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that here we go, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Psalm 4, 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness, divine influence on the heart, to bring peace in the face of death, to provide power to believe for the glory of God when our appointed time comes. Amen. There's grace for that time. But the third thing I wanted to talk about has to do with what Scotty brought up about this thing about our circumstances, our daily circumstances, and how they're very different for each of us every day. And there's grace. There's grace to live now. Daily living grace. Ephesians 4, 7, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of faith. All believers have this abiding faith, and we can pray that Second Peter 1, 2 will be answered, and that is that grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Second Peter 3, 18, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain, obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9 that my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Is there enough grace for us? Is there enough grace for, for whatever we're facing today? or what we fear we may face tomorrow. 2 Corinthians 4.15, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 7 and 9, Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to see that ye abound in this grace also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might, might be rich. We are assured by God's word that there is abundance of grace for our daily living. Here's a key verse I feel in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. God has supplied various means of dispensing His grace to us, and we should avail ourselves of these, such things as abiding in Christ, prayer, time in the Word, fellowship with believers, you know, the Holy Spirit, ministering grace to us all through the day. I really should add that there are consequences to not quickly avail ourselves of God's grace. Again, we're talking about divine influence on the heart. What we need to be able to live the victorious Christian life every day in these circumstances that they come. Just daily living. The One of these dangers, I think, is there's a danger without, uh, if we don't respond quickly to God's grace, there's the danger of living in self-sufficiency. And then there's the sadness of missing out on God's best. There's missed opportunities to bless others with the truth and the love of God. And there's a lowering, I think, of our awareness of God's daily 
moment-by-moment presence. An example of the consequences would be clearly expressed in Hebrews 12, 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. To me here he's speaking that there was a, there was a challenge, there was a test, there was a, there was a circumstance. And if we can then, we can avail ourselves then of this abundant grace that's available to deal with that correctly or not. And if we don't, then there are consequences to not doing that. And we suffer. And others around us apparently suffer too because of our not responding to this abundant grace. Again, a key verse, 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. We're talking about super grace here. It's, it's wonderful. It's, and it's normal. This is the normal Christian life God has for us, is this super grace. It's ours. And I want that to be the description of my life. Grace... <laughs> What do we think of when we think about God's grace? It's not like a trickle coming out of a clogged up hose. It's like drinking out of a fire hydrant all the time. There's more than we need. There's abundance of grace, more power than we need to deal with that situation. It doesn't matter what it is. There's more power from God to deal with that than, than we could imagine. It's not like trying to make it through with a, a stale cracker. It's a feast. It's a, it's a feast before us all the time. Think about it. All day, every day, there's this feast of grace available to us to be able to, to enjoy Him and be able... Will we have challenges? Yes. But in those, there's this feast that can take place, a feast of grace with Christ and Him uh, enjoying Him through that challenge, seeing Him work. It's like, it's like the ocean. It's big. Grace is as big as God is. Because Jesus is full of grace and truth. So grace is big. It's alive. It's huge. And it's right there for us. So I think the word that came to me is that for me, and uh, yes, I've had opportunity to, to try this out. It works. Is to quickly embrace grace for the believer. This is to the believer. And, well, to the non-believer, be saved. Amen. But to the believer, it, it, this day, whatever it is you're facing, it doesn't matter what it is, financial, health, relationships, loneliness, fears of the future, you name it. It doesn't matter what it is. Quickly embrace grace, and there will be sufficient strength from Christ to meet that need. Thank you, Lord, for grace. May we walk, Lord, enjoying you and your grace, Lord, each day. May the testimony of our life be that, Lord, we live by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Ken. Grace, grace. Um, many of you know my background. Uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church. About 50 years ago, I was studying to be a Catholic priest. I was in the seminary and 
Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I remember something that a priest said from the pulpit. Now, that should mean something to you because, you know, it's amazing that you can remember something and it imprints it on your mind. So, you know, a lot of kids are listening sometimes and they'll remember things that, uh, that you've said or spoken or, or did. But this priest got up and said, you know, in his sermon, he says, it isn't that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It hasn't been tried. And I thought about that. I thought, of course, I was, I was always questioning things. I thought, is that right? Is that right? And just recently, I, I said, Who's, where did he get that? Is that a famous uh, saying? Is that a famous quote or anything? And I found out uh, that the, the correct uh, quote is this here. Oh, can't see that too well. Anyway, it says uh, this was G.K. Chesterton was kind of a, a writer, and I, I find out he was Catholic. Um, but it says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Now, we can pass a microphone around, because if you have anything, I, you know, I'd kind of like to say, what's right about that, and what's wrong about that? If you have any thoughts. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Now, to the flesh or to the mind, it's like, oh, that's quite quaint. <laughs> that's pretty nice, you know. I mean, it, it gives you that desire, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. But is, is Christianity something that you try? Is it something you put on and say, well, I'll try it and see if I like it. And if I don't, I'll back out, you know. Uh, I, th I think it's, it's totally wrong, uh, totally, and yet there's some good and there's some not so good. Uh, John, uh, Brian gets up and, and speaks from, from Isaiah and says, Behold your God. And we have to be careful when we represent God. It has to be God. It has to be the real God, the biblical God. And there are so many things uh, that color uh, in our minds who God is and shapes our thinking of who God is, our culture, our church. I mean, American Christianity, is that true Christianity? You go, go to another country and uh, they say, oh, you can't do that in our church. Why not? Well, the elders will pull you aside and have a talk with you. Uh, you know, there are things that we're clouded. We don't see clearly. Uh, so I want to present to you uh, John Snyder once again, a, a video of John Snyder presenting. And wouldn't you know, the, the whole title of, of this group of, of uh, this series is called Behold Your God. Behold your God. Why? Because the desire that we have deep inside that the Spirit draws out of us is that we need to know who God really is. 
Let's not, sh let's not shade things. Let's not color things the way we want. But who is it that we serve? Uh, Brother uh, Ken is talking about grace, grace upon grace. And do we really know the depths and the heights of just the things that are offered to us from the real God? Isaiah says, behold your God. And that's what we want to see. We want to catch a glimpse. So I hope this, uh, this encourages you to, to look at what you have and read the scripture for what it says about our true God. You have to get the video set up for us. After God brought Israel out of its Egyptian bondage, the people began their life with the Lord with an astonishingly foolish choice. They decided that having been brought out by God, that while Moses was on the mount for 40 days, that the best thing to do would be to worship God in a form that was more acceptable to them, something that they were familiar with. And so they got Aaron to build a golden calf. God was so displeased with this idolatrous choice that he threatened to destroy Israel. Moses intercedes on the mountain with God and God promises mercy. But another thing about the story in Exodus 33 is that Moses is not satisfied simply to have God offer mercy again to the people of Israel. But Moses asks a request for himself. And the request is this, Lord, if I have found favor in thy sight, please show me your glory. It's quite an amazing request when you think of the life of Moses. Hadn't Moses already seen the glory of God in a burning bush? Hadn't Moses already seen the glory of God demonstrated in 10 powerful plagues, which humiliated the gods of Egypt and rescued the Israelites? Hadn't Moses already seen the Red Sea parted, the people of God brought over safely, and later the armies of Egypt drowned? And yet Moses wants more. Show me your glory. Years later, a young king named David wrote in Psalm 27, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord. Later in the Psalm, he writes this, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, Lord, your face I will seek. Now, that's not a desire, a longing that's confined to the Old Testament saint. In the New Covenant fullness, we find the same thing. Many examples, we'll just give one for tonight. The Apostle Paul, 30 years after the ascension of Christ, decades after Paul himself had been conquered by the love of Christ, turned from an enemy to a minister of the gospel. He writes from a Roman jail to the small church in Philippi. And in one of those rare moments where he gives an autobiographical statement, Paul says this in chapter 3, the book of Philippians. Indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, that I may know him. This is a common thread for the believers throughout the Bible, this 
mighty longing to know God more, to grow in an intimate and personal awareness of God, but it doesn't stop with the closing of Scripture. We might give many illustrations from church history, just one from the 17th century, a Baptist pastor named John Bunyan, who spent a number of years in prison for the crime of preaching. He wrote of the goodness and the desirability of God, and this is what he said, God is the only desirable good. Nothing without him is worthy of our hearts. The life, the glory, the blessedness, the soul-satisfying goodness that is in God are beyond expression. But it's not just the ancient world. In the mid-20th century, a pastor whom we'll be speaking of often named A.W. Tozer in Chicago wrote this prayer at the end of a chapter in his book, The Pursuit of God. Oh God, he prays, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. This unashamed pursuit of an intimate and personal knowledge of God, this mighty burden to know God better as a believer, a burden that cannot be lifted by anything less than that one-on-one -on -one contact with our Creator. This is what we've come together to study and to consider. This is what we've come together to stir each other up to pursue. I think, though, we'd have to admit that, sadly, words like these might seem a bit strange to us today in church. We may think that these writers were um, exaggerating. We may feel that they were... Uh, using poetic license and describing the greatness of God and, the, and the, the desire of their own hearts. We may feel that they were letting their emotions run away with them. But there is another answer. The difference between what we see as normal Christianity and the statements that these believers made might be rooted in the fact that they knew God in a way that we, in our day, have only read about. During these 12 studies together, we want to seek the Lord the way they did. Like Moses, we want to plead to God, yes, you've given us favor in Christ. Please show us your glory. Like David, we come to God and desire to have responsive hearts. When you say, seek my face, Lord, my heart says, your face I will seek. Like Paul, we want to count all things in comparison to knowing Christ as garbage like John Bunyan, we want to be able to say, I have tasted and found that God is so good that His goodness, His satisfying goodness is beyond expression. And like A.W. Tozer, we want to say to God, we long to be filled with a holy longing that can only be met in Him. So it may be that the gap between what we experience as Christians and what we read in the Bible and in church history of the great longing of the saints is rooted in the fact that they knew God better, but there is another and more tragic possibility. It may be that the God that they knew was the God of the Bible and that the God that we hold in our minds, the idea that we have fashioned of God, even as believers, may be so far beneath the biblical account of God that no one 
would say, I count all things loss to know the God that we have in our imagination, that no one would say, having been given favor, oh God, show me your glory, that no one would set their heart to a pursuit of the gods, the small and inadequate view of God that we hold. So we want to make sure that in this study, that it is the God of the Bible that we're pursuing. I know that passion is a is a word that is valued in Christianity today. You can't go to any bookstore without finding the chapters or the titles of books with passion written in it. But passion is not enough if you're passionate about a God that doesn't exist. If we're passionate about a God of our imagination, if we're passionate about a God that it's been passed down to us from our culture, but this is not the God of the Bible. It doesn't do any good to run passionately on a wrong road. So to help us in our study in the early weeks, we'll be looking at some basic truths that we've got to really get under our belt if we're to understand and to benefit from the passages in the Bible where God describes himself. After those early weeks, then we'll have the middle section of the study. We'll be mainly concerned with the tools that God has given us to get to know him. And then the last section of our Weeks together, we'll be looking at the practical applications of the character of God brought down into every area of our life, the individual, the family, the church. Well, today we want to look at some of the truths that we need to really get a grip on and truths that we want to grip us. We have five tonight. Let me give you the first. The first truth, if we are to really get to know God and to pursue a clear and biblical view of Him, is this. We must understand that the most significant thing about us, the most significant thing about you, is what comes to your mind when you think of the word God. Now, this is true for all people and not just for those that claim to be Christians. Because it's always true that a man or a woman or a child will make choices based on their general idea of what God must be like. Even an atheist has a type of religion based on the thought that God doesn't exist. And based on the non-existence of God, the atheist will make certain decisions. He makes decisions in his home. He makes decisions at work. The Muslim makes certain decisions based on his view of his God. The Christian makes decisions based on his view of his God. What you think of God is the most distinguishing thing about you. Education, race, age, none of these are so distinguishing as what we deep down really believe God to be because it affects everything. Everything will flow from that. So what is your view of God? Now, I'm not asking you what your official view of God is. That is, I don't want a Sunday school answer. We don't want to ask ourselves, what does my church say that I'm supposed to believe about God? We don't want to ask ourselves, what does my denomination say that we believe about God? What do the books on my shelf say that I believe about God? What do my parents say I'm supposed to believe about God? The question is, what do you really believe and think of when you think of God? Now, our true view of God is not so easy to spot as our denominational statements or creeds or confessions, our true view of God might remain hidden under a great pile of religious rubble, phrases that we pick up from church and from Christian radio, things that we say that sound good, but it really masks what we think. So if you're going to really understand what you think about God, 
it'll probably take a courageous and a determined search of your own heart. But whatever you find your view of God to be, it is the most distinguishing thing, the most important thing about your life. Let me give you a second truth. Knowing God is the great jewel of Christianity. Yes, we're thankful for the many other things that have come from the cross of Christ, but they all lead to this great source. They all lead to knowing God. I know that we live in a day where even in the churches, it seems that the idea of knowing God, personally knowing God, the idea is that this is such an easy thing. It's like bumping into someone on the street. A child comes to the pastor and says, I don't want to go to the, to the hell that you talked about. I want the heaven you talked about. I want the friend you talked about. I want the happiness you talked about. And those are all good things. And the pastor says, generally, depending on the church tradition, you need to join the church or you need to get baptized or you need to say these words after me. You need to ask Christ into your heart, whatever it is, and you know him. And the implication then is that's the end of the journey. But it's a wrong view. We take for granted that everyone in our church knows God. We sit down, we look to the left and to the right. There are people, they're all cleaned up, they're all nice looking. They're our friends and family. And we really have a hard time imagining that anybody on the pew next to us, anybody in our small group may not know God. Knowing God in our day is the easiest thing in the world. Some of the symptoms of this, the flippancy in our worship, the casualness with which we stroll up to God in our prayers, the boredom that we display with the Bible, unless the preacher's giving us the four steps to how you can be happy. In reality, though, knowing God is no small matter. I wonder, are we so casual with God? Because we, in the 21st century, know Him so well. Or is it because... We hardly know him in our churches at all. It's no small matter to know God. Let me give you a few verses that will help us to see this. The first is found in John chapter 17. And it shows us this. In order for people like you, in order for a person like me to know a God like that, God must entrust all authority into the hands of his son, the God-man, as he goes to the cross. Anything less than that, anything less than all divine authority is not enough to accomplish what had to be accomplished for you to know him. Christ prays in John chapter 17 in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you see what he says there? Did you catch that? Father, you have given me all the authority so that I can bring people to know you. And this is eternal life, not a long existence in paradise. Eternal life is knowing my Father, Christ says, and knowing me. 
It's not a small thing to know God. Let me give you another evidence of that. In Philippians 3, the passage we read from Paul, I want us to go back there and see that knowing God has a beginning. It does, doesn't it? In conversion, when a person comes to Christ in a repentant faith and embraces Christ for who He is and lays down at His feet all that we are. But that's the introduction to God. It's not the entire relationship. It's the beginning. I've never met a young couple who's getting, who are getting married and they are satisfied to come together for the marriage ceremony and then leave the building and go in opposite directions on planet earth and never see each other again. But that's the kind of Christianity that we often have. Come, ask Christ to save you, trust him to do that. And you are a shoe in for heaven. What more? Well, it would be good if you joined the church. It would be good if you worked, put your shoulder to the wheel, look at all these other Christians giving, working. Don't you want to be one of them? Well, yes, I suppose I ought to. But what about longing to know God better? Well, you already have God. Now, it's not that we say this to people, but it's the implication of the way we act. The introduction is everything. But Paul is so different. Years he has known Christ. Who would we think knows Christ better than Paul? Would any of us say, I think that my experiences of God are probably more glorious than Paul's experiences in 20 years of the ministry. Who, like Paul, saw the glory of Christ demonstrated in the way he conquered people, conquered families, conquered cities? Who, like Paul, had a clear grasp of the doctrines of the Bible, Old Testament, how they wove together and brought them to Christ, New Testament events, how to interpret them? He wrote half the New Testament. And yet Paul says, 30 years after Christ has ascended, to the Philippians, if you want to know really what goes on on the insides of your pastor, I'll tell you, I'm still counting everything else as loss, even the good things in my past. I look away from them in order that I might have more of Christ. I want to know him. Let me give you another evidence that the knowledge of God is not a small matter. It is a knowledge that can flourish even in the worst spiritual environment. If the knowledge of God is an easy thing to get and it's a small matter, then I suppose it would be easily snuffed out and discouraged. But that is not what we find in the Bible. It is not pleasant, easy circumstances that we find the knowledge of God growing in. It's not only in good churches. It's not only in the New Testament when there seems to be a great revival of religion under the preaching of the apostles. It's not only when David is king and he's pointing the nation to God. People in the worst churches, in the worst families, living at the worst time, can cultivate a growing intimacy with the uncreated God. Hosea the prophet preaches during a time when Israel is so idolatrous, God compares her to an adulterous wife who has been brought out of a filthy lifestyle, but after living a while with a clean husband, she grows bold, uh, bored and bold and goes back to the old life. Over and over, God draws her to himself. She goes back again. The prophet is sent with a number of threatening messages, but in chapter 6 of the book of Hosea, Hosea is sent with a message from God to entice his adulterous bride. 
And Hosea says in this passage this, he says, yes, God has torn us, but he will heal us. He's wounded us, but he'll be merciful. He's withdrawn that presence, but he'll come back. And so, verse 3, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord, for his going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth. Nothing in our Christianity, can be compared with the jewel of knowing Him, really knowing Him forever, regardless of our situation. But if that's going to really be our pursuit for these 12 studies, I think we have to be realists and we're going to have to face a couple of hard facts. And that brings us to the third great fact. The third great fact is this, that we do live in a day when the truth that the knowledge of God is not a small matter and it is the great treasure of the Christian life. When that truth has been replaced by pursuits of secondary matters in Christianity. So certainly I think we would have to be honest and say that the early days of the 21st century have been days when, especially in America and in the West, there has been a very aggressive rethinking of things in Christianity. Rethinking worship styles, rethinking inner city church plants, rethinking how we raise a family. These things are all good. It was good to rethink them, but the problem is they don't, they're just not radical enough. No matter how much you change the worship style, no matter how differently you approach inner city missions, no matter how different you raise, differently you raise your family now than you did before, No matter how radical the changes in these external areas, it's not radical enough because it's the root problem that we need to deal with before the fruit can be made right. For all of our thinking, it seems that we're only dealing with the externals. So when we consider a pursuit of a high and biblical view of God, when we consider the duty of rethinking God biblically, we need what one historian, Mark Knoll, referred to as a Luther-like Copernican revolution. And we'll talk about Luther in later studies. So let's just take this term, Copernican revolution. What about Copernicus? Well, I did a little study today to make sure that my ignorance didn't show. He was born in 1473. He died in 1543, a Renaissance astronomer. Now, most of us know a little bit about him. Copernicus goes out, and in the time of the Renaissance, as man is searching and pushing the edges of human knowledge, he views the night sky. With a precision, he records and studies the movement of the planets, and he comes to the revolutionary discovery that the earth is not the center of the solar system. It's not the center of the universe. That may seem silly to us, but it was news for them. His book was published right before he died in 1543. He didn't get in trouble because he died. Because the man that followed him and carried forth this idea a little more, named Galileo, did get in trouble. Sadly, the Renaissance church, the Roman Catholic church, misinterpreting certain passages in the Bible, condemned the idea that the sun was the center of the solar system and that our earth was orbiting the sun. They said, no, that doesn't sound right to us. We believe that God said in the Bible, which he didn't, that the sun orbits the earth. The earth is the center. 
up to that point, they were confused. Now, what we need is a spiritual Copernicus. What you need is to go to the scriptures and study the scriptures, especially those passages which describe God, with as much precision and determination as Copernicus studied the night sky until you have a Copernican revolution. And what I mean is this. In our day, we've been told, even by the church, that we are the center of the universe. Me, my spiritual needs, my eternal destination, that's what's important. My family, my town, my friends, our church, our denomination, our nation is the center of all creation. And we all fall right in line with that. But we must lovingly and humbly go back and say it's a lie. Everything in church, everything at home, everything in the individual life must orbit God. We need a Copernican revolution. We need to see that planet Earth is not the center, that we are not the center, that you are not the center of God's universe. Now the church is a little confused. Taking the passages of the Bible that speak of the amazing, condescending love of God, that He knows your name, He knows your needs, He has given His Son for your sin. Knowing these things, the church has taken a mistaken step and said that God is centered around us. But it's wrong. We need to go back to the Bible and to see God for who He is until He acquires in our eyesight such spiritual mass that He pulls every area of our life into His orbit. Let me give you the fourth truth. Knowing God is costly. Don't fool yourself. If you want to know Him, you will have to lay all that you are and all that you plan to be, and all that you have on the table. If at any moment you pull it back, you're finished knowing God. There's no progress there. He will reveal himself to his children, but he will not reveal himself unless he has access, full access to you. But it's worth it. Nothing is more directly beneficial than knowing God. Nothing is more practical. Nothing is more relevant. Nothing is more exciting. Nothing is more satisfying than you knowing the uncreated being through His Son. That leads us to our last point. The last truth is a warning. If you're to know God as the believer longs to know God, you must avoid the counterfeit versions of knowing God. There are ways of appearing to know God, which like a counterfeit from a distance, appear to be the real thing. They look good, and you will get praised by people for them, even in church. But God knows you don't know Him, and you know that it's not satisfying. Something's wrong. There are three counterfeits I want to mention. The first is this, knowing God by hearsay. Now, this is where you say, well, 
when someone asks you a spiritual question, you say to them, well, my preacher said, or I read in a book once, or I remember my mother used to say. Now, it's good to learn from other people, but if you want to know God, don't you want something other than secondhand knowledge? Don't you want something other than hearsay? You only know God by what you read in someone else's book. You only know God by what you heard in someone else's sermon. It's all secondhand. They pressed in. They pressed on to know God. You read the fruit of that and you think that you know God, but you don't. Secondhand knowledge, knowing God by hearsay, is not enough. If you're satisfied to know God by hearsay, it is the death of really knowing Him. You'll stop short. Second, Textualism, strange thing. It just means this. You own a Bible and you're a conservative Christian. So you say, I give my allegiance to this book. And whatever's inside this book, I'm telling you, I agree with it. Now, I'm not saying I know it. I haven't said I've studied it carefully. But if it's in this book, I'm for it. And so the preacher says, or a friend says, you know, in Ephesians 3, Paul talks about knowing the love of God the length, the breadth, the height, the depth that is beyond knowledge and being filled up with all the fullness of God that he might receive glory in the church for ages on ages. And you say, well, listen, I'm sorry, maybe you didn't hear me. I believe this book. And I, I don't remember Ephesians saying that. I haven't read Ephesians, perhaps. I haven't read in a long time. But I told you I believe this book. And so preacher or Christian friend, whatever you quote from this book, I've agreed with it. Now, textualism is this mistaking an allegiance to a text for the possession of what the text is talking about. So Paul says wonderful things about what a Christian might have by way of intimate knowledge of God. You agree with Paul, so you think you have it. If you are, if you are satisfied with textualism, then it's the death of really knowing God. Let me give you the last one. True truths. These are truths that are so familiar to us, so obviously true, that instead of making an impact on our life, we tend to shuffle them to a back room and lock them in a closet. And we know that they're true, but they're so obviously true, and we've known them for so long that they no longer make any difference in the way we actually live. One example would be, that men used to think the earth was flat, but now they know it's round, and so you know the earth is round, and that's probably one of those truths that's in the back cupboard for you. And that's not the kind of truth that made any difference to you this morning, did it? Anyone disagree with the roundness of the earth? No, we say, well, we know that. But when I woke up this morning, it didn't affect the way that I dressed. When I looked in my closet, the roundness of the earth didn't do anything for me. When I sat and ate at Breakfast this morning, I didn't eat in light of the round earth. I didn't drive my car in a certain way because the earth is round. I didn't listen to things on the radio and make choices about the way I spoke to my family or to the people at work. It's a true truth. I'm familiar with it. It doesn't affect me. If we're not careful, the great statements that we've heard over and over about God's character can become true truths that no longer affect us. Take the omnipresence of God, that God lives everywhere. Any person who reads the Bible and believes it would agree that the Bible says that God fills the heavens and the earth, space, the universe, and hometown. 
That's where God lives. He's everywhere. That God lives in heaven and in hell. He's everywhere at the same moment. That wherever I go today, God is there already. That God is the environment that I have lived in every moment of my life, and He will be the environment forever and ever. That I cannot lock a door and lock God out. I cannot turn out the light and blind God. I can't whisper and He doesn't hear it. Every good deed and every bad deed, every sinful thought has been done right before the face of God. He's everywhere. Anybody disagree with the omnipresence of God? Well, we say, no, the Bible says it, but is it a true truth? Have you packed it back in the closet so that it no longer makes a difference in the way you live? Did you look into your wardrobe this morning, you open your closet, and the reality that I am before the living God who is holy means that I choose this way, and, and I sit down at the table, and, and I eat this way, and I drive my car this way, and I listen to this kind of thing, but not that kind of thing. And I talk this way to people because I am before the face of God always. If you are satisfied to agree with those truths and put them in the back cupboard where they don't bother you anymore, then it's the death of really knowing God. Now, what do these counterfeits have in common? They're all cheap. They don't cost much. They are versions of knowing God, a type of knowing God that doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to lay it all on the table to have secondhand knowledge, hearsay knowledge of God, to agree that this is a book that ought to be believed and to say, yes, I believe all those truths the preacher says, but they're back there. They don't affect me. They're cheap. They're manageable. You get to be in charge of your life and have that counterfeit. Another thing they have in common is this. They are respectable. And the place that they're most respectable is the place that they ought to be exposed, but they're not, and that's church. I don't know anyone who gets scolded for coming to church and saying, I read a great book. You know what you said about God? I agree, because I read Hudson Taylor, and the great missionary Hudson Taylor said the same thing. And people think, wow, what a wonderful Christian you are. You read Hudson Taylor. You read so-and-so. You listen to sermons during the day. I wish I was that kind of Christian. I wish I knew God like that person knows no one ever pulls you aside in church and says, do you know God? Or do you only know what other people said about God? No one will ever scold you for loyalty to the Bible. These are very respectable sins. They look great, but they are all ineffective. They do not alter anything about our life. They leave us unsatisfied and disillusioned. Remember Hosea's challenge in that dark day? Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His coming is as sure as the dawn, and He will refresh our souls like spring rain. Is He telling the truth for our day? The answer to that for you cannot be answered with your mouth. It can only be answered by what you do next in life. Do you put it to the test? Let's pray. Our God, you are the Holy One, high and transcendent. You possess a solitary glory, God, none like you and none but you. But Father, you have sought us out. You have stooped down and condescended. And you have, through the bloody death and the perfect life of your Son, brought us near that we may know you.
We ask, Father, that you would again open our eyes to see, as if for the first time, who you really are, that you'd give us grace to smash the small and unworthy views of you that have snuck in and lodged in our hearts and found a safe haven. God, that you would captivate us. We ask it in the name of Christ. Father, we ask it for the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, Jim, for queuing that up. Regarding that sermon, regarding even maybe what Brother Kenny said, or me, or Scotty, or even some comments from Jim. Any questions, comments, clarifications? Or are you like me going, I know nothing. Move right into prayer requests and announcements or anything like that. Mary. Mary.